Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Heather is the Mental Health Commissioner in South Australia and over a decorated career has participated in the development of the National Qualification for Peer Workers. She's also assisted in co-designing the resources for the Certificate for Mental Health Peer Work and worked with South Australian Mental Health Coalition to bring the qualification to South Australia. Heather is a strong advocate for consumers living with mental health issues at a local, state and national level. She was an inaugural member of the National Consumer and Care Register and now a member of the National Consumer and Carer Forum. On today's episode, Heather discusses the role of peer work, the development of peer work training, and her aha moments that led to a huge process and structural changes for the sector. It's wonderful to see Heather on the podcast, and we welcome Heather. Heather, thanks so much for joining me and sharing your story, your journey with our listeners. I appreciate your time, and yeah, thanks for coming and taking a seat at the table. Thanks, Sam. Heather, give us a bit of background. Give us, give our listeners a little bit of context about what made you get into mental health in the first place, and then we can talk about what you're up to in the space. Well, I didn't choose mental health. Mental health chose me. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Fortunately. Fortunately or unfortunately. So I was initially a dental therapist, so that was – really? I've gone from dental to mental. Wow. Um, yeah. So I've obviously had my own lived experience of having a mental illness, which was – quite debilitating at the time and yeah. totally turned my life upside down and yes yeah did you grow up in south australia i did yes so i grew up in metropolitan adelaide okay and and so as a result of your experience of mental ill health you went down the path of getting involved in mental health and been yeah. a quite played quite a big role in in mental health especially in south australia and the peer workforce context but Tell us a little bit about that, yeah, the initial getting involved and, and how did you find getting started in the mental health space? Yeah, so my, you know, my illness originally took place in Metro Adelaide and it wasn't until I'd, I'd moved to a rural area that I actually started my recovery journey. Right. And I was so lucky that I just seemed to have the right people in my life who actually cared enough to, you know, hang in there for the long term and see me through it. And as I started to improve, they realized who I'd been before and sort of said, oh, you know, you'd make a really good advocate for people with with mental illness and, and we want you to sit on this and sit on that. And so, you know, at a regional level, I sort of became involved in advocacy, yes. uh, local health board and or the hospital board, and then trying to organize people to come from Metro Adelaide to our community, to Mount Gambia, to hear the voice of, of what people with lived experience of mental illness wanted. Yeah, so helped facilitate that. 
Mount Gambier is southeast of Adelaide. Adelaide, is that yeah, correct? yeah, yes. yeah. South Australia. I haven't yeah. been there, but I heard it's beautiful. It is lovely. Are you still down there? No, no, no. Okay. So I've now moved to Mount Barker. Okay. So I would have stayed there. Oh, gosh, I can't remember how many years I did advocacy there. But that kind of then led to a friend said to me, oh, I've seen this advertisement at a state level where they're looking for a mental health reference group. I really think you'd be amazing. So I applied. And then, of course, the next thing I'm doing is, is sitting at a state level and learning lots of new skills wow. and things. So, yeah. At that point, was there a qualification to be in the peer workforce? Was there any any formal no. education that you could undertake or it was just no so at that stage i actually hadn't even heard of peer work it was very much a thing that was you know abroad yes and i went i got the opportunity to be funded to go to a perspectives conference in melbourne and i heard sherry mead talk and sherry mead is, is one of the you know instigators of peer work she's like one of the pioneers of peer work and i sat there and in that moment i thought oh my god all the stuff that I've been through, I could actually put to use to actually be able to help other people. I hadn't even thought about it until that moment. What year was this, roughly? Oh, that, I'm not very good with like years. Early 90s, mid -90s um, 2000s? Probably, yeah, early, uh, late 90s. Late 90s, yeah. okay. Yeah. Because it was in its infancy there, peer work, wasn't it? I mean, we started seeing some lived experience coming through. Yeah. I don't think it was really formally recognised. No, it wasn't. And, you know, I couldn't even have worked out where to go in Australia to actually look at how you become a peer worker. But I went back to Mount Gambier and I thought, you know, I've got to make this happen. And I was part of an organisation called Addisey, which was the Anxiety Disorders Southeast. And so we decided to do some sort of voluntary work in reaching out to people and just talking to them and, you know, sort of helping them navigate the system a little bit. And then, of course, the, the Partners in Recovery program was initiated and I was fortunate to be part of Beyond Blue. So I became a, a speaker for Beyond Blue. Yes. And I was, part, I was part of the conversation around the development of Partners in Recovery and, of course, pushing the peer work aspect. And we had a tender process in Mount Gambia and that was run by MIFSA and I was lucky to become their first peer worker wow. in a paid position. So I wasn't trained at that point. Yeah. I actually was studying a diploma of mental health, community mental health. Hmm. And how did you find navigating the different courses to undertake in the mental yeah. health space at the time? Well, there was a certificate for mental health and yeah. a diploma, and I just decided that I'd go for the diploma. Yeah. And I was really lucky that while I was working, I had you know, assistance and someone to mentor me through that process. And then from then, I became involved at a national level and was asked to help look at the qualification for peer work. Yeah, I'm keen to get into that. But if we, I loved a question that came from the audience today, which was the distinction between lived experience mm. and peer work. For our listeners out there or the workforce, I may or may, may or may not know of the actual distinction, but it is yeah, different. Yeah, it is very different. So do you want to give us your interpretation of that? Yeah, especially? so I think, I think how I responded was that, you know, lived experience means that people have had an experience of living with a mental illness. People who tend to want to be helpers in the sector have often experienced part of the the mental health system or wanting to change it from a social justice perspective, which is what I think drives people. In terms of the peer workforce, 
you know, it's a specialist skill set. So it's people who have reached a point in their recovery where they're living quite well, or they've managed to work with episodes of mental illness quite well. So they've got a support system and they feel that they're in a, in a quite a good space to be able to help someone else. So we then provide training for people to actually know how to use that skill set to help others. So a lot of people think that peer work's about telling your story. Very rarely do we sit down, well, I don't think I've ever sat down apart from being a Beyond Blue speaker and right. told my whole story in, in detail. So it's about pulling parts of your story to illustrate or create hope for someone else. I uh, got it. Mm. It's only a slight distinction, but it's an important one, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's a big distinction because we don't, you know, if you sat down with someone who's quite unwell and started telling your whole story about yeah. you'd probably see their eyeballs rolling and they'd be yeah, going to sleep yeah. or they would have walked out. Yeah. But it's about pulling little snippets to go to provide hope. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> it's really interesting. So I, I think over the time of your career, how have you seen the role that experience and peer workers come through since it was really not intentional, but they were there in the sector helping, but it wasn't really formalized to where we are now? Where, how have you seen that for those two? Yeah, so a lot of people would do voluntary peer yeah. work, which for some, for some people that worked really well if they were on a disability support pension and they didn't want to earn money. Or, but there's a fair responsibility within it if we look at true peer work and then there's you know you need to have supervision mm -hmm. and also you know being paid is is really help i guess from my perspective it's grown a lot more in other states than it has here in south australia which i feel i don't know i feel really how would i put it frustrated about because right. it's not for lack of of putting it out there and it's not for lack of trying to bring it to here. So once I'd been, I was chosen as one of the champions to do the training and assessment and the Cert 4. And then part of my role in that was to bring it to South Australia to, to start training up, which is what we did. And I delivered it with TAFE for five years. And then TAFE sort of pulled the plug on at once. The Department of Skills and Industry withdraw the work ready funding for Metro. Okay. So, so, the, so initially they had the national peer champions. Yes that were, were people that are advocating, getting out there, trying to help drive, or not drive, but trying to attract people to work in the space? Is that what that was about? Well, initially it was about training up people okay. in each state okay. and territory to be able to take it back, to okay. be able to kickstart yes. the training. So part of, you know, we weren't obligated, we didn't sign a contract, but part yeah. of the understanding was that, you know, if we give you the training opportunity, then you'll bring it back to your state and start yes. it off. So, you know, I've, I didn't take that lightly. No. I really wanted that to happen. And I worked with the Mental Health Coalition here in South Australia and we got it up and running in TAFE. So that was pretty special. Yeah. And How then, long ago was this? Oh, I, I did it for five years and I finished earlier this year. So, okay. um, so about yeah. 2016, 2017. Yeah. yeah. So that was a bit of a, it was a bit deflating to have that happen. And it's not something I saw coming that work ready funding would get withdrawn. Yeah. That's state funding. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and it's hard because it's one of those courses that people, people can't afford it. They've yeah. come from, you know, backgrounds where they've had extreme adversity. Yeah. Mm. So, so why do you think the slow, there was a slow uptake in South Australia as opposed to other states? We're smaller. Yeah. I think we have 
fairly, how would I put it, not historic, but standard sort of views around what is helpful for a person with mental illness. I think we have a a big risk lens, you know, but I I guess you got to weigh risk of doing nothing as opposed to doing something. And certainly training minimises that risk because we actually train people how to work carefully and safely and and work within legal and ethical boundaries. So, you know, they do no harm in trauma-informed care. Yeah, I don't know. So we've now got the course up and running through Centre Care. We've only got it with one RTO. Okay. Uh, but we've really got, in, in the government sector, we've got some jobs through, obviously, through NDIS with recovery coaches and other NGOs in other state government programs for psychosocial rehab. But we don't really have a whole lot of peer workers in our government sector compared to other states. Is there a certain quota that you think that we need to get to with that? Well, people have asked me this before. My dream goal would be that every single person that enters the mental health service would have the opportunity to see a peer worker if they wanted to. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, I mean, let's go to the your role, your participation in helping develop the qualification for the peer workforce. Mm-hmm. How did that come about and what did you think of the process? Yeah, look, it was a really good good process. So you actually had to apply. I remember doing my application and then wanted to hit the send button and realised the application was just way too big because there was too many pieces on it. So it was a big, big piece of work and then was just really fortunate to be selected to be part of the, the reference group that actually put together and worked with the Mental Health Coordinating Council of Australia to put together the qual. So mm. you designed the curriculum? We didn't, we didn't design the curriculum per se. We brainstormed what we thought peer workers needed to know. Okay. And then actually paid, you know, curriculum developers to, to go away and actually pull stuff together. And then they'd come back and consult with us and see if it was exactly what we thought we needed. I understand. Mm. And then you also helped or assisted in co-designing the Cert 4 as well. Well, that, that was part of that, that process. Okay, that was yeah, part of that. that was part of that co-design process. Okay. So once, once we did that and the qualification got put together, that's when we actually did the Champions Program and were put through right. the or sort of, not fast-tracked, but there was a lot of RPL and you know, additional learning in that. Talk about the need for this qualification in the peer workforce. Like, I mean, the importance of getting it and having it in the first place. What does that mean to us? Yeah. So I think historically, when we think peer workforce, we think, or certainly here in South Australia, very much tapping someone on the shoulder who's had lived experience, who seems to be managing quite well. And I guess that's how I entered the sector in my voluntary role and also in the FAMS program because I didn't have the qualification per se. So I had the qual of a support worker, but, you know, bringing in my lived experience, but I didn't actually know how to do it exactly. Part part of it was innate, but when I look back at at being trained and doing the training and understanding and being able to articulate what I do to someone else, I really didn't know. (laughs) So that right? So you gain a lot from doing that. I I think, you know, a lot of the legal and ethical things around duty of care and dignity of risk and trauma-informed care and and just being non-judgmental and active listening skills and all those things you have a little bit of knowledge yeah. and, and you innately have obviously experienced it because you've had counselling and, mm. <laughs> you know, you've learned a few yeah. things along the way. But it's not the same as knowing why you do something 
Does it surprise you that until you break it down that you actually think, wow, there actually is a lot to this? Yeah. Uh, and to try and be really helpful in this position and affect change in people's lives. I mean, it's a great opportunity on one hand, but like, yeah, it would have been challenging to really come up with. It was challenging for me because I think I thought, oh, I, I, can, I can do this. I can support someone. I know what I'm doing. Why do I need to go and do training? I've done a diploma in mental health. But then when I went and actually did the training, you know, I had these real aha moments of, oh, now that's why that's done that way and this is what I need to be thinking about. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm not here just to respond and validate a person's experience. I'm actually thinking about the process. Yeah, it put some structure to it. It did, yeah. Yeah. And certainly in being able to <clears throat> articulate what I do to someone else, that certainly helped me because I could never actually yeah. put, put that in words. Yeah. So, and has there been any other further iterations to it? Like, did you, after undertaking it, do you think, well, hang on, it's back to front a little bit or? Well, know, yeah, it... that's interesting you ask that because initially when it was developed, the ASQA, who's the national body who oversees accredited training in the vet sector, they changed the qual a little bit. So the care unit was changed somewhat. And so we had to go back and sort of, relook and relearn and redevelop assessments and things like that to mm. meet those changes. Here in South Australia, when I delivered the qualification, you know, there's some flexibility around some of the community services units that you can put in there. And I sort of really found a need that people needed to be able to have a conversation around suicide and suicidal mm. thinking. And when I looked at one of the units, it fitted really well with the Living Works Assist training so we actually slotted the living work and I'm, I'm a trainer in assist as well so okay. you know it was kind of worked really well we slotted that in and then developed the assessment to it and that's sort of something that living works has gone you know how can we replicate this in in other states and other areas and what we found was that we've had to add a number of role plays into the qualification assessment as part of the accreditation and what we found is that peer workers are just natural at asking the question when i've taught assisting communities people really struggle to say are you thinking of suicide whereas the peer workers just no problems at all and no yeah. problems with the responses that came back interesting yeah it but is. they do have that knowing don't they i mean they have that ability to they know they have a well i guess for majority of people that probably have had life changes so much that they want to become peer workers yeah. they may have been in that space and place before yeah. and just have an understanding of what it feels like yeah yeah and and are quite okay about talking about that let's talk about the role that lived experience has in the mental health sector we're seeing a lot more co-design we're seeing a lot more voice come committees advisory groups boards having more input in this tell me about how you've seen that change over your time and and the importance of having this voice at the table when it comes to trying to yeah. have that have that person-centered care to integrate it into that process somehow to make ultimately better outcomes for patients i mean I, i'm I sit on a national level and also a state level. If I look at a national level, I think we, we're getting there. I think we're starting to, to bring people in and we're actually listening to what they're saying and we're articulating that into plans. In terms of implementation, I think some states just do much better than others at this point in time. 
Here in South Australia, I feel like we've we've got to the point of knowing that we need to bring people to the table and that we need to consult with them and that we need to co-design. But I haven't really seen, or well, the mental health services plan here does have some reference to the peer workforce, but it's really been driving the need to drive that planning. Like, you know, if you want to have a peer workforce, that's one thing. But, you know, if you add in training, we don't just spit out a peer worker in, in six months. And we also need to plan the positions because we don't want to put people through training and then in the end of the day, they don't have a job. So, you know, it's about developing that whole guideline and framework for the lived experience workforce, which we've just got to the point of doing. And of course, we've done that nationally as well. Yeah. So do you find it, it if you look at the recruitment aspect of that, then is it, is it hard? Is it, is it a challenge to get into, want to undertake the training? The training? No. When I left TAFE, we had 110 people on a, on a waiting list. Oh, wow. Mm. And, and having said that though, we interview each candidate to make sure that they're in a space and place where they really want, you know, are able to do it because yeah. obviously they need to be of benefit to the person they're working with. And often some people will go, I didn't realise it was so intense or I don't think I'm in that space. So, you know, we might have reduced that 110 down to 70 perhaps. Okay. But then I think people are also resistant to do it because the jobs aren't necessarily there. The NGO sector sort of funded from bucket to bucket yeah. And then when the bucket runs out, we, we lose the workforce. Is that why you think is part of the, the issue that, that South Australia is a bit behind in some senses because of is funding a different state to state? Do you see? I think, well, I think there's things that have influenced interstate. You know, we've had a, a Royal Commission in Victoria. So yeah. obviously they've had a, a big focus oh. on building their peer workforce. We haven't had anything similar. And I, I guess... You know, I feel like we've done a lot of the seed planting. It's now to grow it, and we're going to grow that hopefully by, you know, some sort of investment into positions. Yeah. Mm. Tell us about, I mean, you mentioned something in your presentation earlier about encouraging peer workers to look beyond the mental illness yeah. and, and the importance of the person and the environment that they're actually in, especially in a rural context. Mm -hmm. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Because I, I like the way you said that. So I, I often give students a piece of paper with a black dot on it and I just pass it around and go, okay, so what, what can you see? And they'll say, oh, you know, a black dot in the middle of a piece, white piece of paper or a black dot on the page or, you know, get those sort of things. And I think, okay, so if you're not focusing on the black dot, what's on the rest of the page? And they go, nothing. <laughs> So if, then I sort of say, well, if, if the black dot represents a person's illness and the white page is the person, what's the other parts of the person that you're not seeing? So mm. you're, you're, they've come to you because they're not travelling very well or they're you know, feeling distressed or what have you, but what are all the other aspects of their life that could have contributed to where they are today? So, you know, the things like education, finance, relationships, work, volunteer work, sense of purpose, all of those those other things that we need to be thinking about for a person. Because we can do all the therapy in the world to try and fix the mental illness, but unless we deal with those things that live within that person's world, mm -hmm. we're not going to reach recovery. We're not going to, well, we don't reach recovery. Recovery is obviously yeah. not a space, not an end point, but we can't get them on their road to recovery. Yeah, it's almost like, 
shows the it shines the light on the importance of the context of where the person is holistically yeah. rather than you're right just looking at the illness itself yeah and it, and it, and it changes your whole focus around yeah. what's wrong with you to what's happened in all of your other spaces for you you know have you lost yeah. your job yeah. has your centrelink been cut off and mm. and you know you've six months trying to sort it out or have you got physical health issues that might be impacting how you're feeling have you had a relationship breakup mm. so that gives them a better understanding of the context or the environment and a bit more to just behind the actual ill health challenge that they're facing yeah which is important when you're looking at that pathway to recovery to really find out what that background is isn't it well, it's, I guess it's the difference in peer work and a, and a clinician focus because if right. someone comes into hospital and they're quite unwell, let's say they've got psychosis, you know, they've been medicated and then they're kind of spat back out into the system again. But if they don't have a house to go to and they don't have anyone to support them, they don't have any income, they're going to end up back okay. in that system quite quickly. So it's about understanding that we need to actually address all of those issues. Tell us about, I mean, mental health peer work solutions. Tell me about, it's a company, organization? Yep. Something that you co-founded? Yeah, so Robin and I used to train for TAFE. And when the TAFE removed the funding, we often said, to, you know, people. some people aren't ready to do a certificate for and some people want to dabble in a few things. And some in some instances, we've got people in lived experience peer work positions that haven't done any study and they might have been there because they were tapped on the shoulder because they had lived experience or they might have come in with some other degree or qualification. So we decided that we wanted to actually teach people how to use those, those fundamental peer skills and offer professional development opportunities. And we also do some consultation around if an organisation is wanting to implement peer workers, what sort of things do you need to have in place? What sort of training do you need for the staff? We provide training for that staff, for the staff as well. Wow. So how long has that been going for? Only this year. Oh, okay. So yeah. very new. Very new. Yeah. Okay. How's it all, is it all going well? It's been really good. We've we've done some work for Reach Out. They wanted to bring in a peer chat program. Yep. So we sort of scoped the organisation, their policies and procedures to make sure that, that it fitted well for peer work, provided education for the other staff that would be working with the peer workers and then we sort of looked at what the skills were that the peer workers would need and developed several well actually I think there were about six or seven sessions but it's not accredited so what it meant was we can give them a certificate of the parts that they have actually studied and then they can do RPL if they want to do a certificate and just explain how they've utilized those skills. What a great initiative like to take it in your own hands and just saying well you know we'll, we've got to find a way to deliver this and it's Mm. important i mean you must have found has there been some challenges as you've been going through it with the business yeah because yeah. i'm i'm really passionate about peer work in case you hadn't been able to tell. <laughs> so i do everything for nothing yeah whereas my business partner's very much into you know you actually have to put food on the table yeah. like we need to charge for these things yes. so she's she's sort of the the real business head and and keeps us running afloat um, so that, that's been one real challenge for me is that I just want to get in and do it. And if people don't have fun, I just want to make it happen anyway. Yeah. Oh, good on you. <laughs> tell us about... My family wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Tell me about the peer workforce as it relates to the rural context. What do you think the role is for that for 
rural and remote communities with peer workforce and where do you see it heading? Yeah. So, I mean, I was really fortunate that I had an amazing GP when I was living in a rural area and I also had an amazing mental health nurse with community mental health that sort of, we probably went over the boundaries a little bit and we came really quite good friends and they were in a, yeah, whilst that, whilst that's an issue, it wasn't, it wasn't because I was very clear that, you know, their professional boundary was here and the friendship was here, but they're the types of roles that people have in rural communities. You know, people become your friends who are professionals. It's just the way it is. And I, and I guess I, I could delineate which was, what was the professional role was the friendship role. So that worked well, but very much it was about having ongoing support people who believed in me, people who wanted to know about how I was before I became unwell. Mm. So they saw me for who I had the foundation of being, not just my illness. So I've always wanted to recreate that opportunity for people. Yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, rural GPs have to make, you know, be very creative around what they do. And I think I was really lucky to have a really creative GP who just found ways of doing things without you know all the clinical tools that she might have had needed so yeah wanted to create that for people but there's a real whilst there's a real need i think in terms of where we're actually implementing you know e-health strategies and we're doing e-health consults i think it's really important for people to have someone from their community who can actually make sense of what's being talked about i don't know how many times i had a a telepsych and I wouldn't remember anything out of it because it, you know, wasn't in a headspace where I could actually be open and talk. Nor did I trust the person on the other end of the screen? Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't going to tell them everything. Whereas I think someone who, a peer worker who's working closely with someone can actually articulate that to the clinician to save a whole heap of time, to save the person from having to retell their story over and over again but also then to translate whatever the clinician says into their community, if that makes sense. So, you know, okay, it's really helpful that you you have a purpose. So let's go out and find out in a community what that is. Or if they sit with a psychologist and they're talking about CBT strategies, being able to prompt a person to be able to use those. Yes, more of the day today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think more and more we're going to see e-health stuff coming through. I mean, COVID's kind of proven to us what that's like, and I'm not sure it should be the default for people. I think they still need human connection. So how do we, how do we use that space, but also create human connection opportunities and being able to translate things into community for people? Yes. Almost like bridging the gap uh, and in between appointments, because it can be quite long in between. So what happens are you just on your own, but you have having someone there that can guide you that can help you along the pathway yep. a little bit more on the week to week side of things would be more beneficial than yeah and if you do become weeks. distressed about something someone who knows you yeah and can help you unpack as to what what's caused that distress what does safety look like for you yeah yeah knowing the people who care about you and love you and will be willing to be there for you yeah. Instead of, you know, thinking to the conclusion, well, there's no trained psychiatrist in Mount Gambia or wherever, so therefore we need to fly the person to Adelaide. So you're uprooting them out of their community yes. and sending them in a really scary space. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the the role on this. Is there any is there any 
proof of concept with this with regards to Indigenous or First Nations communities with their workforce? Good question. <laughs> Look, the whole of the, the qual is based on a social emotional wellbeing construct. Okay. So I think, you know, translating it into an Aboriginal and Torres Strait context is totally possible. However, I'm not from that background, so I don't want to say or draw conclusions that it is. But I think we're at a point that we actually need to sit down and co-design yeah. what, what, what's needed to be added and what, what can actually stay. Because yeah. I think it's incredibly helpful. Yeah, mm. surely. Yeah, especially, you know, peer elders. You know, teaching them around peer work skills yeah, yeah. and that use of story and, yeah. So as yet, there's nothing in there yet, but hopefully at some point. Yeah, so in the Northern Territory, I don't think has anyone teaching the okay. qual at the moment. However, I guess they can do some online programs. But it's it, training online is not the same as, you know, getting down face-to-face -face and doing role plays and, yeah. and learning from the other peers. Mm. Yeah. But I think it has huge potential. And here in South Australia, we've, we're actually starting up a, a wellbeing centre for Aboriginal people. And certainly we'll be looking at how we put peer workers in there. Will that be based in Adelaide? Yeah. Yes, okay. I think so. Yeah. Well, that sounds really interesting. What, hmm. what other things have we got coming up that you're excited about? I know you mentioned something around the guidelines. Yeah, we've gotten the national guidelines for the lived yep. experience workforce have been published and are out. And here in South Australia, we've just started our own state guidelines. They're almost finished. Okay. So just started almost finished. They're actually almost finished. Okay. It's been a co-design process, so it's been quite lengthy yeah. to get there. Most states and territories that I'm aware of have developed their guidelines as well. So I yep. think we're getting in a space where we're thinking more broadly about what's the framework that sits underneath this and how do we make this happen. What about the 30 scholarships? Yeah, so the federal government decided that they would provide some money for scholarships for yep. the Cert for Peer Work. There's a number of challenges that sort of sit within that space in that there's a limited number of people who have got their training and assessment and the Cert for in Mental Health Peer Work to train it. So some states are saying it might have been more helpful to have a scholarship for a training and assessment cert for, but you know, working a way around it, the fact is we've, we've got the scholarships and we have to prioritise Indigenous people yep. and also people from rural and remote communities. There is, yeah. Mm. What, what are some of the things moving forward that you think will be quite an next sort of challenge, so to speak, or something that you think is really going to be important that we prioritise? Uh, as it relates to rural and remote mental health in the coming yeah. five years or so? Well, just back to the peer work thing and the scholarships, I think one of the things that we absolutely need to do is to train the clinical workforce in what peer work is because a lot of the people who will be peer workers in rural and remote communities have actually sought services through those people. And whilst... People have different understandings of what trauma-informed care is. It's one thing to understand what trauma does to someone's brain and to, and to their reactions, but it's another thing to be thinking ahead of what might, how might this impact a person if I did this, which is what we really teach in peer work. Now, even, even the space in a room, does the person want to sit close to the door in case they want to leave? or have the option to leave whenever they can. Yeah. You know, is it threatening to sit in a room with a man, with a male? Thinking about all of those things and, and putting that to a person. So we actually do need to train clinicians around what peer workers are going to bring. Otherwise, we're going to 
re-traumatise people yeah. and then we're going to put them, you know, basically send them back to have to access services with the same people that might have traumatised them. So that's a huge piece of work and it requires planning at a state level. Yeah. Mm. What does, as we round the straight for home, Heather, what, what's, what, what, are you, what are you most excited about in the future for yourself and where you're headed? For me? I'm 64. I'm probably going to retire soon. I started your new business. What do you mean? Yeah, well, yeah, I've still got the business, but I mean, yeah, in terms of my other roles. Yes. I would be really excited just to see the growth of the peer workforce yeah. and to see people just having a much better experience than I did accessing services at the beginning of my journey. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was horrific for me and I don't want people to go through that. Are we on the path though, compared to when it was when you went through your? I don't know. Journey? Yeah, <laughs> um, okay, yeah. And and obviously I haven't I haven't sourced acute services yes. in the last ten years, so it would be difficult for me to say. Yeah. But based on what people tell me about their experience, maybe we're getting there a little bit. Yeah. I think we've now got the danger of people like we've used recovery as a buzzword. Yeah, I know what recovery is. I do recovery, but we don't actually unpack what recovery looks like and right. we actually don't necessarily go through all of those steps. So we're still getting people, you know, discharged from ED into homelessness or, you know, without a viable house. Wow. Mm. There's so many moving parts to it. There are. There? Yep, there are. Follow-up is everything. Follow-up and, and consistently trying to get things done and... So many pieces of the puzzle that need to come together. Mm. And just having someone to walk the journey who actually cares about the outcome for yeah. someone so that they don't fall through a gap in the system yeah. and just sit there. Yeah, or you don't have a different doctor or clinician every time you go yeah. see somebody. Yeah, or even if you do have a different doctor, you know, having someone who's, who's the continual person yeah. to help make sense of the whole thing. I think it's been really interesting talking to you. I appreciate your time. I think it's wonderful the work you're up to. I wish you all the best in your in your new business venture, Mental Health Peer Work Solutions. If people want to get a hold of you or the organization, what's the best way to do that? Just Google Mental Health Peer Work Solutions and we yep. come up the top, which there is pretty go. awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with me. I appreciate you sharing your journey so far with Thank our you. listeners and congratulations on all the work you've You've done to date and uh, let's hope we can keep it going and, and provide better outcomes for people that are going through the process of you know trying to seek help and 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 recover from mental illness yeah thank you sam definitely the aim <laughs> well we hope you enjoyed this episode feel free to share with your friends and colleagues and if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.